What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Dominic Frisbee, author of Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. Uh, it's not the only book he's written. He's written other books as well. We sat down to talk about taxes, the history of taxes, the violence behind taxes, and how they may change uh, in a world in which Bitcoin becomes the dominant reserve currency. Uh, talked about a bunch of other things, uh, Bitcoin demonetizing gold to a certain extent. It's a fun app, fun rip, Friday afternoon rip, finally getting it out on Wednesday. So I hope you guys enjoy it. It's brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App's helping you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard, all right? There are 100 million sats in each Bitcoin guys been listening you know this but we gotta we gotta beat at home i just had somebody i was on somebody else's podcast they're asking me uh, oh why should i buy doge why should we buy doge why should we buy bitcoin doge is five cents like what happens if it goes to a dollar that's a 20x they don't understand they're using unit bias unit bias they think they see doge at five cents bitcoin at fifty seven thousand dollars and they're like oh it's so cheap compared to bitcoin they don't understand doge doesn't have the incentives uh, the, the network effects it is tail inflation into infinity. It is not the same as Bitcoin. Uh, $57,000 Bitcoin is extremely cheap. And one sat is cheaper than one doge. 100 million sats in a Bitcoin. Cash apps help you stack sats. You can DCA into it. Buy a cert certain amount daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Cash app be your bank account. They're offering account numbers, routing numbers. You can direct deposit your paychecks, stack sats right away. If you haven't downloaded the Cash App, make sure you do so. Use the code stacking sats. That's S A. How do you spell stacking sats? Not S A. S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 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 Owls Lacrosse. This episode is also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is creating a, a Bitcoin lending platform. Excuse me, uh, not Bitcoin. Can you lend Bitcoin? Whatever. They have a new lending product. It's available to U.S. customers. If you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, that's the point I'm trying to make, you don't have to, okay? You can put your Bitcoin up as collateral and get liquid, tether, uh, or other types of stable coins so that you can get liquidity and, and not have to sell your Bitcoin. Uh, and the best part is it's non-custodial. There's no KYC. You're engaging in a multi-sig escrow contract with a counterparty. You always hold one key. You never lose control of your Bitcoin. There's going to be no rehypothecation. You go and you meet peers on Hoddle Hoddle's marketplace. You engage and you agree on terms. You put your Bitcoin in a multi-sig. You get some stable coins. And you're able to go send that uh, how spend that however you wish. You don't have to sell your Bitcoin. On top of that, if you have stable coins and you want to get some yield on that, you can put it up in this marketplace and get some yield on that on the other side of this. So go to lend.hoddlehoddle.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L, H-O-D-L dot com. Uh, check out, out all this. Again, it's available to U.S. customers. So if you're in the U.S. and you want a, a non-custodial KYC-free way to get uh, liquidity for Bitcoin that you don't want to sell, lend.hoddlehoddle.com. So this is also brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is helping to democratize hash rate. They want the little man to get in on the game. And what they do is they go and they set up uh, partnerships with large hosting facilities. They get you a good rate, electricity rate, 
uh, cost per kilowatt hour. They get it down so it's profitable. They help you acquire miners. They plug them in, and then they start streaming sats to you. All right, they, they want to democratize hash rate and let the little guy get in and help distribute individual hash pr- producers. The more individual hash producers, the better. Our the our friends at our friends at Compass Mining are enabling you freaks to do that. Uh, so again, they're taking out all the, all the hard work, all the dirty work. They're they're taking away the confusion from you. They're abstracting that away. And their team is, is working to just make it as seamless as possible for you to interact with them, buy a miner, have it plugged in at a hosting facility at a, a competitive uh, cost per kilowatt hour rate and have you get sat streamed to you via mining instead of buying uh, via KYC AML. It's a, it's a cool way to get in. And if mining is extremely profitable as it is now, as the difficulty just adjusted downward, uh, you can get sats potentially cheaper. Not a guarantee. That was not in the ad copy. This is Uncle Marty speaking. Go to compassmining.io. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Check out everything they have going on. We're going to have links to all of our sponsor deals in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dominic. If you're liking the podcast, the content we're putting out, please subscribe, rate, review. If you uh, are so kind to do so, we would really appreciate it. It helps us get more exposure, helps people get better uh, Bitcoin content in front of them. We don't need people pumping Doge, okay? We need people stacking sats. And so we need to get this good content in front of them. Love all y'all. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a lovely Friday afternoon, sitting down with a guest who's been putting out incredible content for years, some content that has helped me uh, uh, helped me come to understand Bitcoin back in the early days when I was first getting into it. Uh, Bitcoin, the future of money. I'm sitting down with prolific author Dominic Frisbee. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Martin. Uh, thanks for, very much for having me on. Thanks for coming. I mean, uh, again, like I said, like, because you were you at Max Kaiser a lot back in the day as well? Um, yeah, I was. Basically, whenever I write a book, I try and go on as many shows as possible in order to promote the book. And one of the shows that I went on was was Max Kaiser's show. And then um, and that was my first book, Life After the State. And I, I'd written a, uh, a film that was very popular called Four Horsemen back in the day or co-wrote it. And um, I think I was on Max's show talking about that as well. And then when I wrote Bitcoin, The Future of Money, I thought I had the scoop on who Satoshi Nakamoto, <laughs> who's who he is or was. And um, so I went on Max and we sort of did the big reveal on Max's show. I realized, by the way, that it's totally immoral to do that. But, you know, that's well, your latest book, Daylight Robbery, like I was telling you, I've been reading it. 
when I can over the last month since we first since you first reached out to me and I'm about four and a half chapters in I think it's a fascinating subject one that Bitcoiners think about a lot taxes daylight robbery how tax shaped our past and will change our future is the title of the book and there's a history of taxation and you seem to believe that it's something that we're never going to escape but it can be minimized to a point and maybe we could talk about uh, towards the end of the conversation, how Bitcoin plays into that minimization of tax. Um, but I think the, the whole history is fascinating. Uh, again, like in the beginning of the book, going going uh, uh, into the tax structure in England and how the tax collectors would look in windows. And people started boarding up their windows so they couldn't see in and people were combining chimneys. And you can tell this story much better than me. I, I guess we could start with why you decided to write the book and things you learned or important. Sure, I'd be glad to. And when I wrote Four Horsemen and um, Life After the State and Bitcoin, I was convinced that, you know, in a in a in a zombie film, you have a zero patient, patient zero. That's the the bat in China. That's the first person to get the virus. And mm -hmm. the hero of the zombie film's got to go and get to patient zero. And either patient zero gives him the antidote antidote or patient zero he has to kill patient zero and then he ends the virus and saves the world and i was convinced that so many like I, I was a gold bug for many years before bitcoin came around i still like gold and you know so the whole fiat money narrative you know was very very apparent to me even in 2007 before bitcoin had been invented and i think satoshi was probably a gold bug as bug as well because he's one of his aims was to digitally replicate gold and but anyway, I was convinced that if we're going to save the world, if we're going to save the West, if we're going to save society, if we're going to government's going to start living within its means again, all these things, you know, the only reason that government has been able to grow so big, the only reason that those wars in the 20th century were able to go on for as long as they did and to the extent that they did was fiat money. Fiat money is the zero patient and we have to get rid of it. And, uh, you know, I've just wrote so much and became obsessed about it. And then after I finished Bitcoin, I took a sort of six months off from writing books or whatever. And I just started to think more and more about it. And I, I started to develop this theory that, in fact, it, it's taxation is the zero patient. That's not to say we don't need to solve the ills of fiat money. Oh, boy, do we need to solve them. And, you know, thank goodness the free market in the form of Bitcoin has come up with a solution. One, the most wonderful collective effort in the history of mankind. It's, you know, if ever there's an advert for voluntary collectivism, it's Bitcoin. And 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 that's very difficult from, from coerced collectivism, which is, you know, socialism. Anyway, I mean, Bitcoin is socialist, except everyone's doing it voluntarily rather than and, and they're all united by the, the goal of, of profit. It's a <laughs> higher Bitcoin prices. It's a wonderfully uniting force. And so the psychological psychological dynamics of Bitcoin are amazing. But anyway, I started to become convinced that that tax is patient zero. You design that there's never been a society in all human history that existed without taxation of some kind. Taxation is as old as civilization itself. The very first written records we have are tax records. And in fact, tax records, you look at something like the Rosetta Stone, it's a tax document. Tax records tend to be the best preserved. You know, historians always go to the tax records because they tend to be well preserved for obvious reasons because government revenue depends on it. And in fact, taxation is power. 
it is control. If a government or a king or an emperor or whatever the ruler is loses control of their tax revenue, they lose their power. And so taxation is, is everything. And, and in fact, the idea of a sense of duty to the greater collective, it, you know, it probably existed in the, in the um, hunter-gatherer societies that predated civilization. In fact, it's almost, it's built into us because, you know, the first thing you do is um, look after your own survival, make sure you eat and drink and get shelter. And the first thing you do after that is look after the survival of the species, uh, which is, you know, you reproduce. So, so anyway, so once you start to look at the world through this prism of taxation and you realize that you design a society by the way that you tax it. And in fact, you can learn about a society by the way that it's taxed. You determine how free or subordinated the people are by how they're taxed. You determine how prosperous that society is going to be. Taxation is a measure of freedom. You know, there's a big argument where there's a big argument with Bitcoin is going on about money, but there's a huge cultural war going on about free speech, free thought, censorship, um, free movement. You know, they're all related. And, and Thatcher used to say you can't have freedom unless you have economic freedom. And you start to look at once you start to look at the world through this taxes power narrative you start to realize that pretty much ev any great event in history had some kind of tax story behind it without which that event would have unfolded in, in a very different way every war was made possible by tax every revolt was a re rising up against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system every conquest was about taking control of the tax base the land the labor the produce the profits even things like religions you know, which are in the old days were a system of, of governance, but they were also built on, you know, Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem to pay taxes. Islam expanded so rapidly and so quickly because it relieved the conquered people of taxes and, and they were given a choice. You either convert to Islam and pay no poll tax or you pay the poll tax. And if you don't pay the poll tax, we'll kill you. <laughs> so it's death taxes or Islam and everyone chose Islam and ex Islam expanded incredibly rapidly. And, you know, the first men on the moon were put there because NASA was a taxpayer funded operation. And you start to realize that the whole of human history has been shaped by tax one way or the other. And then you start to look at the world today and you can see, oh, well, the inequality gap, why is the inequality gap so difficult? Why is there such an age gap between generations? And then you realize that young people are taxed heavily by income tax and then the money they're paid in is, is taxed via the inflation tax. Meanwhile, wealth, assets that they want to buy, houses and so on, go untaxed and actually benefit from inflation because that debasement of money pushes up their value. And there, right there, you see the dynamic of the inequality gap. It's caused by taxation. And then once you start to look at things like this, you, you just see how the future is going to pan out and how you, if you're designing a society, if you start by redesigning its system of tax and then go from there, the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, another interesting thing you br bring up in the beginning of the book too is like taxes effect on family formation like uh, making it too expensive to actually procreate and have a family i mean it's it's detrimental to the growth of our our society to a certain extent right and, and so oh my like goodness me the the most when you ask like there's a sort of underclass in society that are heavily subsidized by the state and are able to reproduce at will 
and have all their kids pay for. But the sort of lower middle classes, upper working classes, middle classes, whatever you want to call them, the most commonly given reason why they don't have more than one or two kids is they can't afford it. And then you say, what is the most expensive purchase that these people make in their life? And it isn't a house, as most people believe. It is their government. Your government, you know, over the course of your life, roughly 50% of everything you ever earn is taken from you in taxes. And, you, you know, it, it's the reason, you know, Keynes predicted that, um, you know, 100 odd years ago that we'd all be working I can't remember what it was, six or eight or 12 hour weeks. And we'd be living a life of leisure because of increased productivity. And all, you know, in the at the turn of the 19, uh, 20th century, um, food, clothing and uh, shelter made up something like 80 percent of the money we spend. And now it's 20 to 30 percent, something like that. And the huge expense that's ballooned that Keynes didn't see coming when he made that prediction was the expense of the state. And it's that expense of the state it's, it's so much people cannot afford to have bigger families. They're also having smaller families because it tends to be the more developed you get, the um, uh, you have fewer kids because, you know, fewer of them are going to die. So you don't need to have as many and people are protecting their own leisure time and so on. All those narratives are true. But the single biggest reason is kids are expensive. And so people have fewer of them. Yeah. And they have them later in life as well. No, yeah, I like, well, I liked it you. Like we're taxed in two ways, right? Like overt taxes that the IRS here in the United States collects and then the inflation tax, which is imbued on us by the central banks and their monetary policy, which is getting more and more insane by the day. Um, so you're, you're taxed officially and then unofficially by the debasement of the currency. And again, I mean, you mentioned this is why Bitcoin exists and why I like to focus on Bitcoin and have this podcast because I think it's important for people to understand how this all works and what is actually driving the inequality. Like I like to say, fix the money, fix the world. Like so, like again, like fixing the tax structure, fixing the inflation tax, as well as the the overt um, tax on the government uh, is going to go a long way. And I think money is part of a is is a key part, but it's part of a bigger story which is taxation. Yeah. That's the sort of, that's the narrative I'm pushing. And by the way, you forgot the third big tax there, which is debt, the tax right. on the future. Right. The most insidious forward. of the lot. Right. And it's, and so what, how would you recommend, like, and that's the other thing, like taxes, at least here in America, people love taxes, it seems, especially um, the people in power right now. They want to raise taxes. They want to, Everybody seems to, to think that the, the, the uber wealthy need to give back in the form of, of, of wealth tax. And they're talking about taxing unrealized gains here. It's a concept that's being thrown around because they think it will fix the problem of inequality that, that uh, is, is growing in our society. Why, do you think, why is there this mainstream misconception and misdiagnosing of the problem where they seem to be hell-bent on making the problem worse by, by taxing more where they should arguably be taxing less and letting the free markets sort things out. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the idea of, un, what is it? What did you call it? Un, unrealized, un, gains tax. unrealized gains tax. Oh, blimey. That's just terrible. Um, 
I, I doubt they'll get that through, but I've, I mean, I've heard the argument. It's it's a wealth tax. It's a wealth tax. And the, the, the good thing about wealth tax is they're actually quite, they sound easy in principle, but they're actually quite difficult to do in practice. And so, I mean, the thing about income taxes is an easy tax to collect. And we tend to think of income tax as a new thing. And it is by the name of income tax. You know, the British brought it in in the Napoleonic Wars. America introduced it in your civil war. And Lincoln introduced it to, to pay for the Union effort. And then it went away in 1875 or something. It was brought back in 1913. But it only really hit ordinary Americans in 1942 with the Revenue Act of 1942, which was um, introduced to pay for another war effort <laughs> right and it's always it's always temporary uh, yeah tax. exactly and you need a crisis to get the tax introduced and then once the tax is introduced it never goes away but the the um the 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 the, the reality is income tax is like the oldest tax of the lot it's the tithe and the tithe you know where you gave a tenth of your labor or a tenth of your produce and the tithe predates christianity by the way we think as a, as a christian tax and by the way they say it's a tithe because you've got 10 fingers on your hand and it was the tenth it was an easy easy number to to calculate but the the principle of the tithe again goes all the way back to ancient mesopotamia and so and and the tithe is effectively an income tax and so yeah, it's a, it's an old form of tax, but it, you know, there's a great quote from George Bernard Shaw about how taxation works. And it is a government voting to rob Peter to pay Paul can always count on the support of Paul. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, that, that just sums it up. And so all these lobbying for higher taxes, it's, almost you know nine times out of ten it's taxing other people and not us and it's as much about getting the money as it is about getting control you know so much of this large state movement that's mostly on the left but to a certain extent on the right is just it's about control no you can't say this no you can't do that no you can't think of these things and very interesting little historical tidbit the censor the word censor, as in censorship, the censor was a magistrate in ancient Rome who was responsible for maintaining public morality, but also collecting taxes. And so there's this, I talked about the relationship between tax and freedom, but, you know, even etymolog etymologically, it's there. And um, the word census as in, you know, Augustus Caesar levied a census and that's why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem. You know, census is a, is a measure of who's who. Censuses were levied in order to levy poll taxes. So census, censorship, taxes, there's, there's a, a lot of crossover in the Venn diagram, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, it's funny, yeah, all throughout history of the tax collectors in, in ancient Rome, the tithe from the church. It's uh again like to, to Paul obviously wants wants uh, the tax revenue from Peter because they think it will make life better. But it's like we have too much data to prove that like the taxes have only gotten more burdensome here in the U.S. Particularly, and quality of society has gone down. I mean, and this is in the face of deflationary pressures from in the technology sector which have made uh, access to information and the ability to to bootstrap 
um, game-changing apps and products like possible. But even in the face of this, we, we have this growing wealth inequality and some people would, would say desperation, right? You have opioid deaths at all-time highs. You have suicide rising. You have obesity at all-time highs. It's a very unhealthy society, uh, which is becoming unhealthier in the face of all these great technological and productivity advancements. It's a bit yeah. counterintuitive. And the, the curious thing is, the more the bigger government gets, the worse things like inequality get. And yet the solution is more government. It's never less government. We didn't do this. We didn't quantitative ease enough. We need to do more quantitative easing. We need, we need more state controls. And, you know, the system of taxation, the system of society as it is currently designed causes inequality. You know, income tax and inflation between them are the two single greatest causes of inequality in the west and full stop (laughs) they really are and and yet the solution is more income tax and more inflation not less you think people are starting to wake up i think last year was a big wake-up call you you lock down everybody um and and the fed printing uh so much money last year specifically and people being locked in their homes and watching this on TV and on the internet as they can't go to work and they're able to pay more attention to it. You saw the question pop up, like if the federal reserve can print all this money, like why do we even pay taxes? Like people, people starting to question is the, the function of how money is produced and distributed and then, uh, then question taxes and how they're collected. Do you think there's uh, an opportunity to, to, basically take advantage of the the cultural uh lack of confidence in our institutions to to get people to wake up and say hey maybe we should lower taxes and bring this back to to a free market society well i think this is where bitcoin is just doing the most phenomenal job like you know i i said i was aware of the whole fiat currency narrative in the in the noughties and i used to write about it a lot but just explaining to people how money worked, how money's created, how it causes inequality. It was just so difficult. And I'm pretty good communicator, I think. I'm pretty good at explaining stuff. And it was just so hard to, and the only place that this narrative was finding any exposure was in the gold price. You know, the more gold kept going up, the more people became aware of it. But then suddenly Bitcoin came along and it's just turned so many people into millionaires overnight and multimillionaires and billionaires. And there's a, a movement behind it, which is, you know, it is a new religion. And, you know, people criticize Bitcoin because it's become like a religion, but there's nothing. Everyone has belief systems. There's nothing wrong with belief systems. There are good belief systems. There are good religions, particularly early in their evolution. They only get corrupted later on. And, but it's just been the most powerful tool to get the money story out there and, and get the message out. And every time the Bitcoin price goes up another $500 or $1,000, whatever it is, the, the narrative is confirmed. And 
you know, all doesn't matter how many articles the Financial Times or the BBC or whatever your equivalents in the USA write saying, you know, it's it's just for speculators and drug dealers. It doesn't matter how much FUD there is. The price keeps going up. The narrative gets confirmed. More people get interested. You know, it's a natural human instinct to want to improve your lot. And at the moment, the Bitcoin economy is the best way to do that. It's the best way to improve your circumstance. And so you start investing in Bitcoin. And once you start investing in Bitcoin, you go down the rabbit hole. You start following all the people who talk about Bitcoin and social media and so on. And the whole thing just keeps growing bigger and bigger and the message gets stronger and stronger and the narrative gets stronger and so that is playing a huge role in this and you know there is a, a huge anti-taxation not anti-taxation necessarily but you know anti-large state movement in bitcoin because the thing was born in reaction to money printing and too much state and so you know that's that's um how the narrative will go. And what you're noticing with Bitcoin is, is, you know, I, I, I don't think you can change government. I think it's, it's just entrenched. And the journey you have to go through to just get this tiniest detail of, you know, some clause of some law changed. It's, you know, year, years of lobbying and this and that. It's so slow. And yet, you know, Bitcoin's like, it's almost created another digital land that you can just go to. And, you know, where these laws, these old systems don't apply. And, you know, more and more Bitcoiners, you see the right, there's so many Bitcoiners are digital nomads. There are lots of Americans who indeed have renounced their own citizenship, but people are voting with their feet. So they're leaving, you know, New York and California, whatever it is, and they're going to Texas and Florida. And then they're going to Mexico and then they'll go to Colombia. And then they'll, you know, and, and the same process that's happening in america is happening everywhere the the rise of the digital nomad and the tax system is designed around an industrial economy where people and goods were stuck in within the borders of one nation state they were easy to control and tax and regulate the crypto economy is a different beast altogether and it's going to prove much much harder to tax particularly as people conduct their labor from jurisdictions that aren't their nationality. In other words, it's, it's slightly different for Americans because you, Americans have this thing that wherever you are in the world, you have to pay tax to America. <laughs> and in fact, if you marry someone, they've got to pay tax to America as well, I recently discovered. And that's a law that goes back to the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, who was trying to protect, protect union tax revenue. And so he brought that, that law in. Um, and of course, like many laws that get introduced in times of crisis, as you said earlier, they they don't get abandoned afterwards. So anyway, so slightly different for Americans, but it's still a big move. And there are plenty of Americans like Roger Veer and so on who've, who've just left. Um, so that's a but that's a big dynamic, the growth of the digital economy and the inability of governments to tax and regulate it in the to the same extent that they do their own physical economies. Yeah, and that's. Again, bringing it back to uh, a point you made earlier where everything's done to, to accumulate power. Yes, they accumulate a, a lot of money, but at the end of the day behind accumulating that money via taxation, whether it be overt taxation or um, inflation taxation is, is power over the populace. And that's an, one thing 
I love about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is, is a money for enemies, whether you're left or right, or no matter what your nationality is, your religion, Bitcoin just works for you, no matter what, what you, what your worldview is or your life experiences. And also in my experience is just helping people. Yeah, realize... if, you're a, if you're a statist and you believe that tax should be 50% of GDP, you can still give 50% of your profits away. Nobody's right. stopping you. Nobody is. No, but it's, but one thing I love about Bitcoin is people get into it and they learn about these properties and comparing it to the false narrative they've been fed and the false framing they've been fed for, for some time, red team versus blue team here in the United States. And um, at the end of the day, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. They're all the same. They're all looking for that power. And Bitcoin takes that power away from them and and, and really highlights and we actually have more in common, uh, the people that are being pitted against each other, the, the media and the political system, like uh, Black Lives Matter and the people storming the Capitol earlier this year, even though they probably don't realize it and wouldn't like to admit it. They have more in common with each other than they do with the, the people in power at the monetary and political level. And Bitcoin really highlights that because you get people from all over the political spectrum coming to Bitcoin for its for its properties and then having conversations with each other and be like, hey, yeah, like, you know what, maybe it is these guys that are that are making all the laws and the rules and taking our money that are the problem. It's not red team versus blue team. It's not the other. It's this particular structure that's been erected. Yeah, Milton Friedman used to say that the best way to get enemies to come together is via the free market. Right. You know, it, it really is. You get you just get people who don't like each other trading and exchanging with each other. They'll get on fine. If you've got something they want and they've got something you want, you trade. You both get on fine. You don't fight. Right, and that's especially the U.S. financial system. It's weaponized everything so it's a, to eliminate free trade between particular individuals uh, uh, in in other countries. Like Venezuela is an example I like to use. Like they're completely sanctioned, but Bitcoin's allowing uh, Venezuelan expats living in America to send money back. It's um, allowing American companies to contract out developer work in in Venezuela. They can pay them in Bitcoin. Um, it sort of dissolves that that artificial border that's been erected via sanctions in, in the traditional financial system and, and allows that free that free trade to, to reign free. Let me um, ask you a question, Marty, because this is something I've been thinking about. Like, you know, what Venezuela has become is, you know, for all the evils of the United States government, the United States military and United States sanctions, you know, Venezuela is not a great regime. <laughs> Obviously not. No, no. I'm talking I, about I remember, citizens, not Oh, okay. I remember back in the '90s, I was, uh, I used to, um, I would take every year. I would go away in January, and I would go spend the whole of January. I'd leave on Boxing Day, and I'd come back on the first of February, and I'd take that sort of five or six weeks, and I'd travel around a Latin American country, and one of the countries I wanted to visit was Venezuela, and the reason I didn't go was because it was too expensive and too middle class. <laughs> Isn't that incredible compared right. to then? You know, in the 90s, it was like considered one of the most advanced countries in, in Latin America. And you look at what it's become now. Anyway, but, you know, hyperinflation, authoritarian governments, all the rest of it, it's not a great place to be. No. But if, if the stuff I'm reading on Twitter is correct, 
and maybe Twitter isn't the most reliable news source, but I think this is right because I've seen videos of it. The Venezuelan military is using its cheap oil, its cheap energy to mine Bitcoins. So that would that would mean that the Venezuelan government is acquiring Bitcoins. Oh, yeah, they've been doing this. For quite a while. So not only they're mining it, they've confiscated miners from, from Venezuelan citizens. They've basically found out where a lot of energy is being sucked onto the grid and being like, all right, these are obviously Bitcoin miners gone, and confiscated them and then plugged them in for themselves. They've been doing that for years. And last okay. year, they, uh, um, the Maduro regime like made like the national website for, for passports, um, like where to purchase and, and get your passport, your Venezuelan passport. And like he integrated Bitcoin payments with that as well. So they're collecting Bitcoins um, via like passport revenue as well. Um, okay. So, and um, am I right in saying the Iranian government's doing something similar? The Iranian government is forcing Bitcoin miners that are registered in the country to give their Bitcoins to the Iranian central bank so that they can buy uh commodities on the open market in the international markets okay so the reason that those two governments have got an interest in bitcoin is partly because they've got cheap energy but partly because their own currencies are so weak and useless yes and and it's the only like communications payments communications network that they can access outside of I think I might be right in saying, I'm not sure I'm entirely accurate, but I think a lot of the Venezuelan gold is stored in Britain and Venezuela asked for it back and we didn't give it to them. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think it was, they asked for like $10 billion worth of gold and it got shut down by the ECB, I believe. So that's an example of, uh, you know, uh, centralized bodies, I suppose. Um, yes. Centralized storage. Anyway, so... So what this is an example of is now I, I do think we're entering some kind of end game for fiat money. Now, I have to say, I've, I, I keep coming back to this narrative. I've been coming back to it for 15 years that fiat money is entering its end game. And then it, each time it somehow manages to survive with just, you know, losing its purchasing power by 10 or 15 percent. It never happens. It constantly threat. But anyway, we're in we're in another one of those periods where it looks like we're in some kind of end game. And the the disappointing reality at the sort of national, when you start thinking about national governments owning Bitcoin, is that it's easier for, firstly, those governments whose currencies are weakest tend to be the worst sort of governments. And those they tend to be the ones also most motivated to acquire Bitcoin for obvious reasons. The sort of democracies of the West, which are far less authoritarian in that they're it's more a sort of technocratic government rather than one person in charge so it's much harder for the central bank for example to suddenly decide we're going to acquire bitcoin a it it it, it requires a certain amount of leadership that doesn't exist there's just too much career risk for a central banker to say something like that there's all sorts of forms and boxes and you'd have to face the scrutiny of the media and all in all it's much harder for western democratic governments to acquire bitcoin than it is for authoritarian regimes like like iran and venezuela now for all the evils perpetrated by Western government, on the whole, I think it's fair to say they are better than Iranian, you know, best, better examples of a bad bunch. Some might disagree. So what I'm concerned about is that the power that is owning Bitcoin and owning sound money is going to be disproportionately weighted in the fiat currency endgame 
to regimes that maybe aren't that benevolent. Do you, do you see what I'm looking at there? What I'm yeah, describing? I see what you're saying, but I think luckily the you know, the saving grace in, in this particular situation is the fact that individual citizens and in Western democracies own a good chunk of Bitcoin and a lot more than the Venezuelan and Iranian regimes I would, I would garner. Um, like, yes, they, they can acquire Bitcoin, but um, they are inefficient and dumb uh, autocratic regimes at the end of the day. Like Venezuela's miners aren't that efficient. Uh, we've seen pictures of them like trying to plug them in and they may not know how to do it uh, and execute well <laughs> on that. Iran, you think similarly. they're using uh, uh, ledger wallets to keep their bitcoins in? Yeah, and who's got the keys? Yeah, similarly, the Iranian ayatollahs and central bank that are forcing registered miners to give them their bitcoin. Like again, like that they force registered miners to to give them their bitcoin, and then the miners in Iran who don't like the government either just drive their operations underground. And yeah, like I, I, these regimes are going to have some Bitcoin, um, whether or not that gives them uh, more leverage on the international power play. Um, I, I think, again, the, the fact that millions of citizens in Western democracies own Bitcoin and hold Bitcoin um, will curb their, their effect on and influence in the future. Mm. Um, that's actually the, like, I don't want the Fed or the federal government to uh, here in the United States to be accumulating Bitcoin. I think they should take a hands-off approach and just let individual Americans hoard and mine and acquire as much Bitcoin as they, as they can and just get out of the way, um, which they've done an okay job of doing so far. But there are, of course, individuals uh, in Congress and the Senate um, who, who don't like Bitcoin and will try to stop it. But Luckily, the West is much richer, and so has been able to acquire more Bitcoin by just buying it. Yeah, I mean, it's so established in North America now, it's going to be not only possible for them to make it illegal. Yeah, and then, it's, again, so the company I work for outside of the podcast, the newsletter, Great American Mining, we go... We go and mine Bitcoin in oil fields using gas that would otherwise be flared. So we actually are helping curb methane emissions in the oil patches over here. And so we're making oil producers more efficient and then more profitable as well. And we're doing it in states that typically uh, take a laissez-faire approach to uh, markets and energy markets specifically. And so once we get more fully ingrained in the oil and gas industry, it's going to be hard to go to that powerful lobby and be like, oh, we're going to make Bitcoin illegal. It's like, well, it's helping us reduce methane emissions and making us much more money. Like, do you really want to take that net bread yeah. and butter away from us? You need to get that story out as much as possible. I, I, I've, I've made a couple of videos about Bitcoin energy consumption. And I've written about it a lot and I've attempted to explain it to people. But the green, you know, that sort of authoritarian green narrative will not have it. And, you know, it tends to be, they tend to be quite statist and, you know, they're using the amount of people that tell me that I'm not going to buy Bitcoin because because it's environmentally unfriendly and it's immoral. And you're just like, you do not get it. No. You do not get it. It's the opposite. You know, you've got examples like your company that are, that are doing the gas stuff. But, you know, I, I, I really like this idea that, that 
communities are going to get built up, starting with Bitcoin mining operations in obscure parts of the world where there would never have been communities. And they're going to, you know, create wealth and 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 you know then there's also all the use of it, it it's it's the, the the expansive use of green energy and bitcoin mining hydrothermal and all the rest of it is driving investment into those sectors which is going to um cause invention and innovation and all these things which ultimately is going to result in the in 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 better cleaner energy systems for all and and it's so it, it actually improves uh, the environment as and then that's before you get on to all the um the, the cost of the environment of all the things that go on with fiat money yeah you're, you're becoming more efficient you're seeking out cleaner renewables and yeah you're bringing a sound money monetary standard into the world that that reduces the misallocation of capital that's enabled by the fiat monetary system it's a it's a win 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 all around. But it, yeah, no, I agree. The the incompetent uh, green uh, terrorist that want to force their view of the world on on the rest of us don't don't like to understand or even uh, hear out the nuance of the subject. Uh, but where, where do you stand on gold, Marty? In this in this unnecessary confrontation between gold bugs and Bitcoin bugs. Um, I just I. I, I think philosophically gold bugs and Bitcoiners align almost perfectly uh, where they where they diverge is uh, whether or not gold has a place in the future as a store of value. Um, I think the properties of Bitcoin are such that it's it's just going to suck a lot of the capital that's historically been stored in gold um, as, as a store of value asset away from it um, just because gold's been completely neutered due to its physical um, nature. And as we mentioned, the fact that the UK won't give Venezuela back its gold, um, it's just like a, an evidence of an attack vector that, that Bitcoin solves. Uh, I think gold in the last six months has seen 12 billion of outflows from gold ETFs compared to Bitcoin, 6 billion of inflows. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of that money's got already going out from one to the other. Yeah, and I've, I've had a lot of gold bugs on this podcast in the past. And I, again, like, I love them. <laughs> we, we align philosophically like pretty, pretty dead on. Um, I think it's hard for people to to attempt to understand the possibility that gold could be demonetized because of this new nation digital currency that has the 5,000 year history, obviously, which is like, all right, it's been around for 5,000 years. And this currency that's been around for 12 is going to take value out of, out of something that's been pivotal and integral to humanity for, for quite a mm. while. Um, you, it is a all, hard. All through the noughties, you know, you'd go to gold conferences and people talk about gold and they talk about fiat money. And people would say fiat money is going to collapse. Gold's going to go to 5,000, 10,000. It's going to go to $100,000. There was these arguments that um, perpetrated by a guy called Jim Sinclair, who used to argue that gold's role was to rebalance the US national debt. So you take the US national debt and you divide it by US national gold holdings. And that is the price to which gold will go per ounce or per, per ton. And you used to come out at these numbers, 30, 40, $50,000 uh, an ounce. And all the things that 
everyone said would happen to the gold price have happened to Bitcoin. They didn't happen to gold. And gold, meanwhile, is trading, you know, it's trading lower than it was in 2011. And the chart looks horrible. Now, I do think you, you, um, the incredible transformation, like when historians come and look back at this period, you know, they talk about the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. This will be looked back on as the, as the digital revolution. Because, you know, 40 years ago, whatever, digital technology barely existed. And all, you know, there's economic growth in the, in the tangible economy and the physical economy, three, four, five percent a year, whatever it is. But the growth in the digital economy has eclipsed it. And a large part of that growth has been the fact that the digital economy has been the Wild West. There's been no government. There's been no regulator. So innovation and invention and everything else has been able to go on, you know, without being anyone having their hands tied. And, you know, the market cap, for example, of the four largest companies in Silicon Valley in 1990 compared to 2020, it was like 100 times higher. And so and there's just a scalability to digital economy that there isn't in the physical economy you look at you know you invent a brilliant app and you upload it to the app store that app can be downloaded a billion times if you invent a brilliant you know i don't know a brilliant cup you've still got to manufacture a billion of those cups and send them out so there's a scalability to digital that there isn't and that's and, and because the economy grows so quick it attracts more in in in, in um investment and you have a sort of virtuous cycle that's you know google invents a really good algorithm it starts using it straight away and scales it up and so there's a scalability so and and i'm sure and so in this world where you've got the physical economy and the digital economy you know bitcoin is the money of the digital economy it's the borderless money of the internet gold gold is incredibly malleable you can smash gold into a plate that's an atom thin you can do anything you like to gold, but you can't destroy it. It is permanent. And that's so gold in this incredible growth in the digital economy. Gold is the single most analog asset there is. And when you start to look at it like that, you, you can see why now, you know, gold was money for years. It was it, it was, you know, the horse was transport for years. And then suddenly somebody invents the combustion engine in the motor car and the horse is just a, a sort of nice luxury. <laughs> Having been transport, you know, since the centaurs. Um, um, so I, I think that might be gold's problem. I've got this notion, though, like when I used to go to Bitcoin conferences in the in the noughties, I would go to gold conferences and I would be 35, 40 years old and I'd be the youngest person there. And then. I'd go to Bitcoin conferences and I'd be the oldest person there. And I was like right on the cusp of the divide between the two generations. And basically the over 55s, the over 60s, gold is the thing. And the under 50s, Bitcoin is the thing. And, you know, it's a real generational thing. It's a, it's a generational thing. It's a physical, tangible thing. But, but you know, gold's problem is that, is, you know, Gold's problem in this economy is its single greatest quality, if you like. It's the fact that it's analog and it's useless. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, we have some Bitcoin boomers. There's a few of them, but they're, they're around. Uh, and no, I, it's, again, I, 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 that generational divide is, is very stark. And it's like, what, what generation do you want to bet on the ones coming up? Or 
And it's a, it is, again, it's a shame because like you said, you were at these conferences in the 90s and these guys had the correct thesis and are are right at the end of the day when it comes to the, the correct way to run a monetary system. I think a lot of them have been beating this drum for so long and now we finally have this transition. They, it's becoming more apparent to more and more people um, that they, they were probably right um, and they cling to the barbarous relic as some people like to call it um, and don't want to believe that this upstart digital currency um, can out compete it again like bitcoin's just easier to verify it's easier to send it's more divisible you can keep it in your mind you don't have to walk around with with heavy bricks mm. um, it's yeah it's just, by the way that barbarous relic quote Keynes was actually talking about the gold standard was he he said the gold standard is a barbarous relic. He wasn't talking about gold itself. It's uh, it's it's one of those things. Everyone says he gold is the barbarous relic, but anyways, it's worth getting that little fact out there. Oh, it's good to learn. It's good to know. I never knew that. I never knew he was uh, referencing the standard. I had a big argument with Jim Rickards once, and he started getting that quote out, and uh, was on stage at an economics conference, and and and. Uh, <laughs> He started saying it's he was talking about gold. I've got the book, I've got the book. And I said, What's the book called? And he couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like Bitcoin. He doesn't, Maybe. and he's wrong. You know, the, the price has proved him wrong. I yeah. like Jim. I like the research he does. He's a good guy. But you know, and I guess he's sticking to the gold narrative because that's his his calling card, if you like. That's what's made him his money, and that's how he earns his living. But you know, the proof is in the price. Right. And I mean. I think we're going to have more proof as we move forward too. Um, it's uh, and again, like that's the, that's, I mean, Bitcoiners, I don't pick on gold bugs or liberty. It's not even gold bugs particularly, but libertarians and free market folks who just have sat around and theorized and gone like up to all these conferences and, and written all these articles. And they talk about what, what a, um, what a free market system, libertarian reality may look like, but they never go and attempt to actually implement it. They, they, they put up libertarian candidates and hope that one, one of these election cycles, one of them will actually get enough uh, uh, excitement around them to, to be put in office. But it's just, you're not going to change that two-party system uh, by, by participating in it. You need to implement uh, yeah. free market ideas outside of that system and bitcoiners and bitcoin does that better than anything out there um and so that's like one thing it's like hey if you're an actual libertarian you have this beautiful free market technology that you can access at, right now and start building on and a lot of mm. people and even in those circles hate on bitcoin it's like this is literally the best tool to to bring about the reality you want um and there's this, pizza teal Peter Thiel wrote a good essay about this. It was in about 2009. I think it's it's kind of an okay essay actually, but because it comes from Peter Thiel, it carries more weight. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um. I mean, if if I'd written it, it probably would have been better better written. But 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 Peter Thiel carries considerably more weight than Dominic Frisby, and with good reason. He's a, a considerably better businessman. But anyway, I think it was called the Anatomy of a Libertarian or something like that, and he argued that that. You know, as, as I said earlier in the show, there's literally, there's no point trying to achieve political change through politics. You have to do it through. You just can't. It takes too long and it, the process is too slow. You have to do it through new frontiers. 
And that might be new frontiers on the internet, in the digital world. It might be new frontiers at sea, seasteading. It might be new frontiers in space. You know, all these, all these new, I keep saying the word frontiers, but all these new frontiers. And that's, that's the way to do it. You, you achieve political change through technological change. Agreed. I, I mean, that's why I focus on Bitcoin. Like as a millennial born in 1991, saw, I was old enough to remember, vividly remember 9-11 and um, the, the push into Iraq and Afghanistan after that under false pretenses. I was 17 when, when the crash of 2008 happened. Um, and happened to be taking an elective economics course while I was in high school, right at that time as well. So um, as it was happening, we were talking about it pretty aggressively in class every day. And that's ingrained in my brain. And then you have the, the bailouts and QE and went to work at a hedge fund and just seeing all the stuff for the first 30 years of my life specifically and how like time and time again, like the state, and the powers that be have just failed miserably and, and robbed people blind and, and killed and murdered under false pretenses. It's really a like a, a red pilling moment, if you will, where like fuck these people. I don't want to like I don't want to like try to change the world via their process. And having that mentality in 2013, 2014. When I found Bitcoin, I was like, all right, this is it. This is how we change the world. Like you, you take the power away from them and you use this distributed digital cash system. Yeah. Bitcoin fixes this. It does. <laughs> it does. Well, like, I, I guess we can hop into that. Like, how does it reduce the state and uh, their ability to tax in your mind? Like, how do you, how do you see this transition as we build this new system in parallel? It's separate from the, the traditional well, system. Like well, start to affect and erode their, their power. The first thing is, is it's a system of money that is beyond state control and state. It's not beyond state regulation, but it's beyond state control. And they can't print and spend it when it suits them. So straight away, once government no longer has a money that it can print at will, its power is dramatically reduced. Secondly, it... It's like the canary in the coal mine. The Bitcoin price goes up because Michael Saylor's putting, you know, two billion, two and a half billion dollars of corporate money into Bitcoin because it's a better store of wealth than the US dollar. And because he doesn't want his, the, the um, purchasing power of his currency eroded by 15% a year. And then on doing so, his stock price has gone up five times. You know, it, that's a pretty powerful narrative. And a lot of corporations are going to be looking at, they're going to be looking at the money that gets printed. They're going to be looking at their own balance sheets. You know, that's a really strong narrative. And the more people that start saving in Bitcoin at the corporate level, as well as at the individual level, rather than saving in fiat money. And now you can get 6% interest on your Bitcoins or 5%, whatever it is. Um, you know, that's a better rate of interest on a sounder money than, you know, half percent or 1% sticking it in the bank. And the more that narrative gets out, the more that forces governments to start financially offering, if they want to compete with Bitcoin, they're going to have, a, have to offer a sound of money and a sound of money immediately puts a, a straitjacket on government and what it's able to do. So that's the third way that it does it. Or I've lost count of how many ways, but this is another big dynamic. We sort of touched on it earlier that I see taking place, which is that 50% of government revenue worldwide derives from income taxes 
and income taxes have been an easy tax to collect in the physical economy. The ta whole tax structure is designed around the physical economy. A man goes to, or a woman goes to a place of work and they have that same job and they have that job for five or 10 or 15, whatever years it is. And the company collects that tax at source on behalf of the government. And so the, the man or the, the employee never actually, he doesn't collect his money and then pay some to the government. He has it removed here. He never actually held that money in his hand himself. But there's been a dramatic change in the nature of work. And, and COVID has accelerated it, but it was a trend that was already in place. And that is the rise of the freelancer, the rise of the self-employed, the rise of the gig economy, the rise of the contingent worker. Pretty much every single, not every, but the large majority of people who work in Bitcoin are self-employed, contingent, freelance workers, whatever word you want to describe them as. And fewer and fewer people are working for one company for five or 10 years in the traditional way that our parents or grandparents may have done with definite career paths, more and more people. And, and the, all the overwhelming evidence of LinkedIn, by the way, who's done loads of surveys on this is that people actually prefer the flexibility of freelance work, even though it doesn't give them the same levels of security. And Ernst and Young have done loads of studies on it. The accountancy firm EY as they're now called to use the groovy parlance. Uh, and they've estimated that by 2030, half of the US workforce will be contingent. In other words, only half will be full-time workers in a job. Now, it's much harder for governments to collect money from contingent workers than it is. The ease of collecting income tax goes when they have to A, collect the money after the event, so they have to reply on good reporting standards from the person who's paying taxes. Often there aren't good reporting standards. Often there's incompetence. Often there's fraud. They find many more expenses to write off against the taxes. So all these dynamics, and, and by the way, the acceleration of freelance work has, um, it has accelerated thanks to the normalization of remote working remotely that, that COVID has made. You know, everything's done on Zoom, you know, you no longer need to go into the office anymore. So that's accelerated this move into contingent freelance work. And so that places a pressure on government income because of this, the work, nature of work has changed. The nature of tax has to change as a result. Now, the next thing we're seeing the rise of is, is we again, we touched on it, is more and more people moving to Florida or, or Texas because taxes are lower. And then gradually they'll just leave the United States. And in many cases, they might do a Roger Veer and abandon their nationality altogether. Um, and in Europe, you know, loads of people are moving to Cyprus and Malta and Portugal and all these low tax jurisdictions. And you just know that to pay for COVID and all the spending that's gone on on COVID, higher taxes are coming. They've already levied the, for, the tax that is debt, which is a tax on the future. There's inflation, you know, we get the CPI numbers next week and they're going to be higher than, than expected. And, 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 you know, even, and CPIs is a manipulated number because it's yeah. basically measuring Chinese deflation and improved productivity <laughs> rather than measuring, you know, the cost of things that people want, like, like houses and financial assets and all that. So, but anyway, even within the fraudulent remit of CPI, inflation isn't properly measured. But less, more and more people no lot being digitally nomadic um, is, again, going to mean it's harder for governments to collect income taxes. And this is their biggest source of revenue. And 
Meanwhile, all sorts of other jurisdictions, there will be a sort of competition between countries and like we want the Bitcoin economy here. We'll give you favorable legislation in order to attract it. And the overwhelming evidence of, of taxes is that people are actually happier to pay taxes if they're low. You know, if you go to low flat rate, 15, 20 percent income, often government revenue actually increases because more people pay. There's less fraud. It's easier to administer. And people feel a greater loyalty to their country if they're not if the demands put on them aren't as great. Um, you know, the loyalty to low state, uh, small state regimes throughout history has much been much greater than the loyalty to totalitarian regimes, which people can't wait to abandon at the first opportunity. <laughs> so, you know, all these all these reasons will just put you know they're all reasons where, where bitcoin is going and they're going to place pressure on governments and you know it's a good pressure because they will have to adapt or they're going to have a very big problem on their hands and, and they're going to have to lessen their obligations they're going to have to stop spending as much or if they're determined to spend as much then they're going to have to get more and more totalitarian it's it, that by the way that sovereign individual that novel it's so predict and not novel that book written in the 1990s lord reese mogg but he predicted this two-tier economy of the future where the physical economy of people who can't move are going to be have all the burdens of the state placed upon them and there are going to be these sovereign nomadic individuals who flip from country to country uh, avoiding all these burdens and you know it's it's happening in front of us yeah such a prescient book and another interesting theme that's developed in the age of covid uh states states rights states like individual states under the federal government uh, sort of fighting for autonomy. I mean, we're seeing this with like states like Florida and now Texas, leaving Connecticut, South Dakota, just be like, all right, we're no more lockdowns. We're opening up, like go live your lives. Uh, so you're seeing this at the state level sort of push back against the narrative being pushed by the federal government in Missouri county of missouri to protect second amendment rights said it's now legal or excuse me it is legal for sheriff's departments uh to to arrest federal agents who come in trying to take people's guns away uh and, and now with bitcoin specifically we're seeing legislation get passed in particular states uh, just this week kentucky um is is waiving the sales tax on energy uh converted by bitcoin miners so bitcoin miners come into kentucky and and plug in their machines they, they get a tax break on the sales tax of the energy that they buy um we're seeing a similar uh bill get get put through the the legislator in north dakota where if um for specifically what we do if, if oil and gas producers leverage uh bitcoin mining to to reduce their flare in the field they will get a tax break as well tax credit specifically um i won't be surprised if we see something similar in states like wyoming and texas um, but you have, and that's something that makes me hopeful as an American, is that here is that maybe we can get like a a a, a return to to state autonomy and giving more power back to the states. Um, I've got to say that's one thing that America's got for it that Europe doesn't have, which is the autonomy of states, and that enables competition between states, and that competition will improve it will just improve matters. That's a real advantage. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons why America was and is so great is that this that the competition between states improved practice generally. The one one strong dynamic we've seen over the last 100, 130 years in, in America and elsewhere is that 
130, 140 years ago, it was roughly a balance of 50% of taxes levied at the cent at the federal level and 50% uh, of taxes levied at the local level. And but now the the percentage of taxes levied at the local level has got much smaller, and the percentage of taxes levied at the federal level has grown much bigger. And it's harder to like it's easier to keep your local tax collectors and that's not because taxes levied at the local level have got any lower it's just that federal taxes have grown that much more and it's it's harder to keep a centralized federal body to account to hold them to account in the same way it is local bodies one of the reasons you know the the large state model works better in scandinavia than anywhere else is that a lot of taxes are collected and spent locally so local people can actually see the effect of their taxes and hold the people who are spending their money to account and Whereas in the UK, which which is, you know, all taxes are paid at the street, you know, it's like one or two percent is taxes are paid locally and the large majority are paid at the central level. It's just impossible to hold anyone to account except with a vote every few years, which doesn't make any difference to anything anyway. So so that's a big advantage that America has. And the more power that the states claw back for themselves, like Florida and Texas, as a result of of, you know, the influx of um people from new york and california and a lot of those people are simply moving to escape not only high taxes but high property costs which is another form of tax really um you know florida and and, and texas are going to see extraordinary booms as a result and and then the other states will see the booms that florida and texas are having and they'll go oh actually we want a piece of that and so they'll start competing so you should see um some sort of competition to drive down taxes at least at the local level but you've still got the the federal problem yeah but you know by the way the um you'll get to this chapter when you come to the u.s civil war but americans you know they don't like being told their history by by foreigners particularly if they've got an english <laughs> accent <laughs> but you know retrospectively the civil war's being painted as this huge fight over over slavery and you know whether it, but the North didn't go to war with the South, and I know the the South shot the first bullet, but they were sort of induced into doing that. The biggest under the reason the South wanted secession to protect its economic interests is that they felt they were paying ninety percent of federal taxes, but most of their taxes that they were paying, the money was being spent in the North. And they were sick at, you know, 50 years of economic injustice. So there's a tax story in the lead up to the American Civil War that is very rarely told. And, and that's one of the things I do in Daylight Robbie. You'll get to that chapter. But it, I, I hope I've thrown a very different light on the causes of the American Civil War to that which is, you know, most commonly told in, in certainly in U.S. schools. Yeah. I'm not saying slavery was an issue because it was a huge issue. But but. You know, there was a there's a huge untold story about taxes and the same dynamic excess taxes is perhaps driving these new successionist movements. I I would I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. It's not shocking, actually, to hear. And I think that's an important context to get out there. And actually, as you're describing it, it reminds me a lot of the EU and how that tax structure works. And it flows from north to south with Germany. Um, really subsidizing the, the Italy's and the Greece's of, of the European uh, Economic Union. Yeah, one of the ways the EU is trying to grow its power is it's trying to take control of taxes. It hates fucking, it, excuse my language, it hates Ireland, for example, and the low tax, low corporation tax that Ireland offers. And it's desperately trying to set 
um, centralized tax rates so that there's no tax competition between EU nations. Uh, it's trying to standardize VAT rates. VAT is basically like our, our sales tax. And as it does that, its power will grow. Yeah. But it is, it is, the EU blows my mind. I think it's one of the worst. I mean, I get you want the free flow of labor between between borders, but I mean, like Greece and it Italy, started like, well, it started well and ended badly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and it hasn't read, ended yet. One of my favorite Michael Lewis books is Boomerang and the way he describes how Goldman Sachs and other investment banks literally helped countries like Greece and Italy cook the books to, to get their debt to GDP ratios uh, in, a, in a position uh, that allowed them to get into the EU. And then they did. And they're basically bankrupt nations that are dragging down people, uh, more productive members of the EU and other parts of, of the region. Um, yeah, it's, it's, again, the state growing and metastasizing and, and yeah i mean we that's one of the i'm quite proud of britain voting to leave it was, it was one i wasn't expecting that to happen where i have another hat where i, I sort of work as a stand-up comedian and i wrote a song <laughs> about brexit that nearly got to number one in the uk charts and the the chorus of the song went the english told them to fuck off and um, but it was it was a it was a very popular song it's, i keep swearing do you need to i, I beg no, your pardon you're fine this is okay. a curse but yeah, it was, I was, it was such a funny, because nobody was expecting that vote. Even the people who voted for it were like, this isn't going to happen. And then it did. <laughs> it shows you just how out of touch the media and everything else is. Well, look how angry they get. Like, yeah, and then they tried they to want... stop it. They spent three years trying to stop the whole thing happening. Well, it proves how much control they want. It's not really, they don't care about the, the well-being of the English, of the Englishman. They, they care about being able to take his tax dollars and throw it back into the EU somehow. Sure, they do, and it's and it, it, it again. The like you mentioned, the media and everybody being pissed, like it, it and it highlights their disconnect from like real society. And it's again like another reason why we should limit the federal government as much as possible. Like here in the U.S., like D.C., like they're making all these decisions and they're completely uh, detached from the information source of, of the economy. Like they're making decisions for, on behalf of States across the whole country. And they don't even like really understand like how they're affecting or what more importantly, what individuals and in different States need. And they're so far away from the source of information. How could they ever make, uh, accurate and, and, uh, good decisions, particularly economic decisions. And similarly with the EU, like everybody sits in Brussels or wherever they meet and they make these decisions for people all across the region and they really don't understand the, the and they're detached from the information that should be feeding their decisions. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, the, the, I think, I don't know that much about American politics, but I do think the Republicans losing Congress was a big blow because at least when one one party held congress and the other um held the senate is that right yes. one held, yeah. th there's a sort of healthy standoff between the two but now the democrats have got control of everything that can't be good yeah they're gonna try and force feed everything through and honestly like i've been so focused like, it's the beauty of bitcoin too it's like i just focus on bitcoin it's like all right they're gonna accelerate the demise of 
federal government and the US dollar system. Like, let's focus just on building over Bitcoin. Like, I don't, I honestly don't care what they do anymore. Like, they can. Yeah, it's just like, want. I'm like that with the news. I don't follow the news at all. I've got, a, I've got a list of people I follow on Twitter and then I've got a, like a Bitcoin list and I don't even bother with the main list now because it just stresses me out watching them all argue about some government policy or COVID or this or that. I'm just like, you guys, you're not going to change anything arguing on Twitter. And so I just go straight to my Bitcoin and my gold and my investment lists, which are, you know, things that I'm actually interested in and can do something about. Right. And that's the... That's the other thing that pisses me off about these centralized federal governments and these big state apparatuses is that people uh, people want them to make, bring the change into the world. Nobody ever wants to take action and do it themselves. Uh, most people, at least, obviously, Bitcoiners and uh, other individuals like you're a Bitcoiner too. So, like people like us, like uh, are doing this. Like you don't go to the state and ask them to bring the change. That you want to see in the world go be the change and that's like the perplexing thing for me particularly as, as we sit at this stage at this particular juncture in the digital age the early part of the digital age the earliest part we're still in the first half of the first inning for baseball reference there but like, there's never been a better opportunity to make the world a better place on your own like you don't need to allocate these decisions to politicians in the state you can use yeah. the technology at your fingertips to build it. Like, That's a really good slogan. Don't demand the change, be <clears throat> the change. Right. right. But the, the, yeah, I mean, people imbue government in the state. I think it's because <clears throat> the whole election process, when that happens, all these politicians make promises. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, I don't know, maybe that's not, I don't know what the reasons, but people imbue government with all these powers to fix things that it just doesn't have. And and that's assuming it even had the will, which in, in most cases it doesn't. And so, you know, I come back to daylight robbery and taxation. You know, if a politician really wanted to change the world, and presumably a lot of politicians go into politics and they at least start out with that intention and, you know, reality perhaps corrupts them or diverts them from their initial intention. But there must be some politics who go in with good intentions and genuinely want to change the world and make it better. If they all focused their efforts on changing the tax system and designing a tax system for utopia, then everything else would take care of itself. Everything else would follow from that. But instead they argue about this policy or that policy or this regulation, this, that, that. and, but that doesn't change anything, but change the way we're taxed and you really can reform the world at the political level well they're all trying to change the way you're taxed but they're just going the other direction <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, i mean I, I do think some tax is inevitable as i said but you can have much lower taxes you can have much flatter taxes there's a great template there in the form of hong kong um you know which was the economic growth story of the second half of the 20th century it it grew at such an astonishing rate that singapore copied it taiwan copied it even china copied it and inventions then and south korea copied it to a certain extent um even japan as much government revenue in hong kong derived from tax from taxing land as we derive in the west from taxing income so we rely on 50 percent of government revenue derives from income tax out in the west in fact around the world pretty much whereas in hong kong it was actually just over 40 percent derived from 
taxing the value of land. And that's not what's built on the land. It's the land as though there was nothing on it. And so, and, and tax as a percentage of GDP never exceeded 14% in Hong Kong. And the, the, it was only the richest people that paid income tax. Ordinary workers didn't pay income tax. Can you th imagine that? Ordinary workers paid no income tax. And, you know, Hong Kong was this incredible growth story and they achieved that. And Hong Kong's tax code is one and a half percent the length of the UK's tax code. One and a half percent. The UK's tax code is something like 14 times the length of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> It's even longer than America's tax code. It's just absurd. We've got the longest tax code in the world. And, tox, you know, and it's more words than most people read in their entire lifetime. And Hong Kong's tax code is 1.5%. And it achieved that extraordinary economic growth. Its population went from 700,000 to over 10 million. Or no, maybe over, over 9 million, I think. Um, you know, it had extraordinary population growth. And you know, some might see that as a bad thing. Some might see it as a good thing. But, but it was an incredible booming economy. And fortunes were made. And this was in the pre-digital age. On a per capita GDP basis, Hong Kong uh, was on a level with most of Africa at the end of the Second World War. And by the 1990s, it had overtaken the UK. And by the noughties, it had overtaken America per capita GDP. Better education, better health care, better transport. And it was all achieved with taxation never exceeding 14% of GDP, no income tax for, the, for low earners, and taxing the value of land instead of the value of labor. It's an entirely different way of taxing people. And, um, you know, the template is there. Right. It is. And <sighs> I hate taxes. You're speaking to somebody else <laughs> to do their taxes over the course of the next six weeks or, or delay. It's never, and it's never easy to pay your taxes too. Oh, it's such a headache. It's so much work. It's cost so much, you know, my accountant, her whole, um, business model is just organizing other people's tax returns and she does it brilliantly, but it's, it's not productive. I'm paying money to her to pay money to the government. She's not actually creating a new thing in the world. It's just reallocation. That's not me having to go at her by the way, because I love her, but, but it's, you know, tax has become this boring thing that is the domain of accountants that people just hate. And, you know, some Bitcoin is actually, get pretty vindictive about it, but most people just sort of pay it and try and forget about it. And, but the reality is once you start to look at the world through the prism of tax and you look at the impact of tax on history, how tax has designed the world in which we live today, how the world's gonna look in the future as a result of taxation, you suddenly think, wow, this is one of the most fascinating subjects in, in the world. And we should study taxation at school the same way we study English and maths and, and science. You know, it's, it's, there's never been a civilization without taxation of some kind. And, you know, there were civilizations where taxation was voluntary in ancient Greece, for example, but nevertheless, there was still taxation. And, you know, I, I, uh, that's why I wrote a book about it and I keep banging on about it. That's <laughs> so important. And it could be so interesting if we sort of, if more people start talking about it. All right. <sighs> Well, thank you for writing the book. I think I agree more people need to start talking about this. And again, going back to your theory that like Bitcoin mining is going to help start these like more distributed societies at the energy source, right? Like, and think about that. Like if you get like these autonomous little cities that are bootstrapped with Bitcoin mining operations that create a revenue flow that allow you to just create like a circular 
local economy with a, a revenue source, with a money printing source, not money printing, but like a money production source, if you will, in the form of Bitcoin mining. Um, it could lead to much more better local decision-making and get us away sure. from. Right? And they'll have to get armies to protect them from the uh, marauding state invaders of the country in whose jurisdiction the mines are in, but they'll be able to afford them and pay for them. But the, the, yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't, the more you think about this and the implications of it, you know, these might be these remote parts of wherever it is, Siberia or Africa or somewhere where there is, cheap unutilized energy you know at what point the, the bitcoin miners could say do you know what can we buy this land off you government and set up our own nation state and you might see these little city states these energy city states arise these citadels of the future it could be fantastic right right and it's an there's another good book that i've read in the last year called strong towns by an economist named uh charles marone he describes how the city of Minneapolis came to be in Minnesota here in the United States. And it essentially reminds me of what we're talking about here with Bitcoin miners is a bunch of lumberjacks just hopped off a train headed West and started cutting down trees. And that's like how the city started. They started cutting down trees, putting it on the train. They built a church, they built a corner store, they built a bar and turn into like one of the biggest yeah, cities in the United I mean, States. You often see cities around mines, communities build up around mines as long as the mines remain operational. Many of the cities of, of you know, Glasgow, huge amount of Glasgow's wealth. Glasgow is the second city of the British Empire. It's the second richest city in Europe at one point. It's a dump now. But, you know, so much of Glasgow was built around coal. And, um, you know, you look at most cities, many cities, they're built on a river. And, you know, because the river was the source of uh, transport, it was the source of energy, it was the source of food. You know, most major cities in the world, Rome, Paris, London, they've all got a huge river flowing through them. And, um, you know, the river was the, was the livelihood and maybe the livelihood of the future will be the, the cheap energy in the Bitcoin mines. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we talked about Egypt earlier, Egypt right off the Nile, so. Sure. <sighs> Are you optimistic about the future? You've got to be. You know, you've got to look back at life and you've got to go, actually, you know, I've been born at the best time in history and everyone born after me has been born in an even better time because, you know, the, the, you know, the free market has just made life so much better. It's given us so much more. And, you know, on the one hand, you can argue that, we are less free because the state is bigger than ever and we're taxed more than ever and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, technology has made us more free than we've ever been. You know, Google and the internet has given us access to more information than we've ever had. The mobile phone has enabled us to communicate in a way that we've never had. We can, you know, I've got on my desk a, a, a sound studio and, a, and a, a television studio that would have cost millions of pounds once upon a time. And technology has just made it possible for a few hundred bucks. So, it, it, you know, I can fly anywhere in the world. I'll soon be able to fly to space. I can drive anywhere. So all technology is this incredibly liberating force. But at the same time, we're trapped in this eternal dance between those who tell you you can't do something and would tax you and those who, who would do something and, and go away and experiment and, and do stuff. So you've got to be more positive. And the later you're born, the luckier you are in a funny kind of way. And you can say, oh, maybe the baby boomers were luckier than people born after 1990 or whatever, because the baby boomers got 
you know, cheap houses. And you go, yeah, well, fair enough. Um, but then the people born after 1990 got Bitcoin. So, <laughs> you know, there's an ever, you've got to say, the stat life in many ways get better and better and better. There are all sorts of things that were wonderful in the past that I think we've lost big families, community, um, community spirit. You know, I'm, I'm really into, uh, you know, I said, I meant write songs and I'm really impressed with all these sea shanties that have been doing the rounds right. on Twitter. I think they're great. And then you realize how those sea shanties came about is that, you know, there were people working on ships and they would sing these songs and they're all done to a sort of heave ho rhythm pulling a rope and and they've all got this thing so they were all work songs basically now can you imagine being on a ship in i don't know 1750 or whatever year it is and and you know before there was uh, coal or any kind of power you were sailing with the wind it was just you on this ship with your fellow men sailing into the winds ex discovering new worlds you must have felt this you know with dolphins chasing the ship it just must have been incredibly exciting world to be alive in with this incredible camaraderie as you all sang songs in the ship just must have been an amazing existence now that's completely gone so i suppose you could say well we've lost that and that's very sad but there are all sorts of other things that we have we live longer than ever we're more aware of how the body works than ever and you know so we've lost a lot but we've also ultimately you have to be positive yeah no i agree we have lost a lot but I, I, again i think the money perturbs it like look at the culture yeah the songs we have now is like per percocets percocets like this was like one of the like literally one of the biggest songs in america like a few years ago it was a song about taking opioids and it's like the culture has been degraded so much. I think it stems from the monetary policy, like beyond music, like the, the housing and building and sculpting has has been severely. Uh, uh, I couldn't agree more. The, you 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 look at the destruction of communities and its relation to architecture, and then you just even with something like daylight robbery, you know. <laughs> because people, windows were taxed, it informed the way architecture works. And because then people had houses without windows, they, uh, they um, had worse lives. <laughs> so, right. you know, that's, that's, that's tax rather than money, but yeah, I'm sure the uh, money is the blood of a society and it needs to be sound. It needs to be clean. It needs to be pure. And we, fiat money is none of those things it is diseased and it has enabled all sorts of things that should never have been able to happen and as the state grows the family erodes because the state starts becoming responsible for things that the family should be responsible for whether it's charity education healthcare, any of those things as soon as they hadn't fall into the stand of of, of the state you created dependency culture those things aren't as done as well and as caringly as they would be if they would be by, by a member of a family you know it's no coincidence that we've seen the decline of morals the the rise of divorce rates all these things have got worse the more that fiat money is debased despite all of that you still have to be positive yeah we have bitcoin <laughs> bitcoin it's going to change the world hopefully it is changing yeah. the world gonna i'm going to do world. a song do you understand um uh non-fungible tokens i mean i yes i understand how they work i don't really i think it's a fad i don't think people are like i think the valuations of some of these tokens are are pretty insane and nonsensical right now i think it's are they the, to, are they the um you know to this bitcoin boom what what altcoins were in 2016 
Yeah, and what ICOs, yeah, what ICOs. And ICOs, they're more like ICOs, aren't they? All coins were in 2013, 2014. I think so. There may be a place for them. And that's the other thing. NFTs have been around since 2014. People don't realize, like, it's nothing I got burnt. I bought a load of a coin called WorldCoin in 2013. I I wonder what happened to them. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) I mean, Um, it's just, it's, you're, you're, they're like, yeah, I don't. I'm gonna focus on stacking Bitcoin. Um, people can can make their own financial decisions and, and get into NFTs. I mean, it's a cool idea, but whether or not the the value that they're going for right now is justified, I'm uh, highly skeptical. Will there be NFTs? Um, and what would you say? Uh, how many bitcoins do you need to have to be a Bitcoin whale? <laughs> I mean, thousand, hundred. Like a whale, like a whale whale, probably like a thousand, yeah, at least. Okay. Um, so a hundred, you're only a senior or something like that. Yeah, yeah, a hundred. <laughs> I mean, for, for anybody listening to this, like, you don't have to strive to be a whale. If you have one Bitcoin, you're going to be pretty well off. There's uh, 21 million Bitcoin. There's 47 million millionaires in the world. Like, even if they all wanted one, they couldn't. So I think you're, you should aim to get, 0.21 bitcoins then yes. aim to get 2.1 bitcoins then aim yeah. to get up to uh, 21 bitcoins and so on 210 just start somewhere and yeah keep stacking the um so and will there be nfts like all the nfts sites i've looked at are all built around ethereum mm-hmm. and you know and the, the gas fees have created a real problem because if you want to list your nft often it, the gas fee of listing it costs you more than the nft will actually sell for you know if you just want to put some stupid little gizmo up there that somebody can buy for a fiver you know it costs you 50 quid to get it up there uh, sorry 50 dollars yeah. <laughs> so that's nah, a big th- will mean, there be like btc based nfts yeah Is that I mean, coming? The, f- the first nfts were were built on a um emerge mind side chain i believe it's emerge mind side chain and counterparty so like Rare Pepe's was the first NFT ever launched, I believe. And yeah, it happened on Bitcoin. And yeah, and there are people working on, believe it or not, third layer technology on top of Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin protocol level and Lightning. And then there's proto- this protocol that's being worked on called, called RGB, which allows you to do color coins, which could bring NFTs to market. And those fees would be severely reduced because you're, you're mm. not going to be trading them uh, on chain like ethereum and paying all that gas it'd be pushed uh up to a third layer and they'd be leveraging the lightning network to um to uh distribute and um move all of those tokens um so the fees would be significantly less i've got a song video that i've made or just have nearly finished and it's it's a it's a thing i did in my stand-up act a few years ago but i, I did a show called libertarian love songs and at the beginning of the show, I would make the audience all stand up and sing the Libertarian National Anthem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's done to the music of the Russian National Anthem, because I thought, A, because it's a really good song, and B, because I thought it was really, f- B, because it's out of copyright, and C, because I thought it was really funny that the Libertarian Anthem should be to the, to the hymn of the Bolshevik Party. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, faces. I, so I've, I've, we've now we've recorded the song and we've got a whole choir singing it and it sounds absolutely fantastic. And we've made this brilliant video 
And normally, like I have a sort of little side business where I put song videos up on YouTube, but I'm thinking this video could have real value as an NFT. You know, some very principled old school whale or something, you know, might, you know, who's trying to build a citadel, you might want this as the anthem for his citadel. Do you know what I mean? I think it would have real value. But like, I can't quite see, I'd rather it was, I can't quite, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to stick it on Rarible on this, uh, the, uh, a couple of the big NFT sites are curated. So I can't quite see what to do. If you, do you think a song video could even have value as an NFT? I mean, like, I guess so. I mean, it's proven in the me space where like the Wu-Tang Clan, they sold uh, a non-fungible album, it was 101, but they did that just in, like, in, in meat space in the real world. Uh, and it has value because um, only one person has that. It was actually Martin Shkreli, believe it or not, at one point. And can anyone else listen to it? I mean, if you go over to someone's house and they, they play it on the, the, the turntable and the person that owns it, yeah, you can listen to it. But um, I guess you could but bring then, your phone and try to record it secretly and then get it out to the world. Yeah. Um, but, but then the know, song only has, because it's a bit like selling the song rights, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so the, you want, if you own the song, you want, like, if you own, if you own the Mona Lisa, you want as many people as to see the Mona Lisa as possible because then it has more value, doesn't it? Exactly. And so I think one thing I like, I, I think the NFT art world is is missing the problem they're trying to make all the scarce non-fungible tokens but everything will get screenshotted and recorded and it'll be shared anyway and person like who has the the hash token it's like oh i actually own it. it's like cool like who cares like you can get all access to this so like you know, the artist will get paid at the end of the day but their art will get out there and you'll just have some clout chaser being like i actually own it where i think bitcoin and lightning network specifically fixes drm where like so for for instance this podcast that we're recording right now it's going to be um it's going to be distributed on an app called sphinx chat and the sphinx chat app is plugged into the lightning network so in our rss feed that goes out that sends this podcast out to all the platforms we've embedded a lightning network public public node um public key node or node public key excuse me into our rss feed so when we send our rss feed we say hey here's our podcast here's the file here's our lightning um public key and uh with this app sphinx chat it picks up that lightning public key and it is also a lightning wallet and so uh it picks up our podcast and as individuals who are listening to the podcast on sphinx right now listen every minute they listen they stream us sats so like 10 sats every minute 40 sats every minute 50 sats depending on how much value they get out of listening to this podcast so similarly do with, they actually they have to press a button to give you the sats do they no no it's all automatically streaming they're streaming it to us automatically um they can press a button as they listen if they like a particular part of the the episode and they they want to tip us for for the idea we brought they can it can boost and, and send us a little more sats um oh. it's called uh and so like plugging that into to a an artist, particularly like a music artist, you could do something similar where you just host a file somewhere and you say, hey, if you want to access this file, you have to pay me a few sats um, as you listen or something like that. Um, and yeah. more and more people will access it and you'll be getting paid by everybody instead of that one cloud chaser who wants to hold the NFT. I personally think that's a better model um, yeah. in the long run. 
Yeah, I'm still going to look into sticking it on Rareable <laughs> or whatever. I, mean, I want to do it on that one that's owned by the Winklevoss twin. What's the one that's owned by the Wink? I don't know. I'm, again, Nifty I'm... Gateway or something. That seems yeah. to be where all the all the big bucks are. I mean, you know, I mean, everybody's making a lot of money right now. I think get it while you can. I think. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I don't think the the again I don't think the valuations of these NFTs are going to last very long and sustain the the levels that they're at right now. But people are hopping on the craze. I, yeah, and it's typical like Ethereum, ICO, altcoin like hype cycles. Like you have insiders, VC interests particularly that have invested in these these platforms, these protocols, and I would not be surprised at all if they're artificially pumping these prices to to get um to get like hype around it and drive other people to spend money on it yeah yeah um the uh yeah that all makes sense um the thing is there's so many people saying it's a bubble at the moment normally when there's that many people saying it's a bubble it carries on going up right no i mean you know i mean people have been saying tesla's a bubble for two years and it only finally seems to be popping now but um anyway we, there's no there's no golden rule yeah i mean you're the artist it's up to you like how you want it yeah, to, yeah. like it's for me like i'm not i mean maybe i am an artist with this podcast like i i like getting sat streamed to maybe a sphinx um and potentially other apps in the future um but as as somebody as a collector of digital tokens the only token i plan on collecting for the foreseeable future is bitcoin because i think it's going to outperform anything especially nfts it's got the network right it's been a fast marty i'm getting uh uh looks from my other half uh through the other side of the door she looks like she's calling me to dinner or some kind of uh friday night activity so i might uh i might politely drop out of the conversation well i know that pressure i'm sorry for for again pushing this a little later than i expected and you expected so i thank you for being flexible there um it's been a fascinating conversation where can we find out more about you um daylight robbery where can people pick up the book well thank you very much for having me marty it's been a real pleasure and uh, i'm very grateful to you and um all my books are available on amazon and daylight robbery being the most recent but if you're into audio books you can get the audio book on you know audible and itunes and all the usual places and all my audio books are read by me and I've got a long history in sound studios and voiceovers and all that kind of thing. So I like to think I have read them pretty well. And the audiobooks had really, it's got 4.9. It's had like over 200 reviews and it's got an average of 4.9, which I think is pretty good for an audiobook. So a lot of people say the audiobook's really good. So anyway, I recommend it. And I also want to just plug one other audiobook, if that if that's all right, called The Shadow Punk Revolution which is an audiobook I made late last year. And the whole thing's a metaphor for Bitcoin. And I had this idea that, that, um, that, that media is, de- format is determined by the media that's available at the time. So the album grew, for example, in, as a result of 33 RPM records and replacing 78, where you can only have one song on each side. And so the album grew as a format and then the internet came along and iTunes and Spotify and all the rest of it and destroyed the album as a form format. It was replaced with the playlist. But I used to love the old 70s concept albums and, and the, the relation, things like the War of the Worlds, where there'd be music and voice. I always thought it was a fantastically powerful um, medium. And so, and I've also got this idea that, that in this 
the brain absorbs information better through the ear than it does through the page. And that explains why there's this huge, we only invented writing as a means of transformation over, over distance and time. Um, but the brain is better geared through the ear. And that's why we're having this huge boom in podcasts, if that makes sense. And so with all this in mind, I produced this story called The Shadow Punk Revolution. And it's a sci-fi rock drama. It's voice and music, a bit like The War of the Worlds. Um, and it's set in the future. And, and it's all about these, uh, this gang of uh, techno anarchic inventors who were very worried about state and corporate invasion of privacy. And so they invent these new invisibility coats to defend against privacy. And obviously the whole thing's a metaphor for Bitcoin. And this one police inspector discovers that drug dealers have been using these invisibility coats to deal drugs in his area. And all the local youth population are being destroyed and corrupted by these terrible drugs that are coming from the cities and destroying this rural community. So he goes on this mission to get to the bottom of what these invisibility cloaks are. And it's, you know, as I say, the whole thing's the metaphor for Bitcoin and finding Satoshi and all this kind of thing. And I it's see. called, and it's about how, you know, Bitcoin for all its many qualities, it did enable a lot of nefarious activity to take place on the dark net. Some of it may be wrong, and but a you know i've got i think drugs should be legalized personally but you know, there's a lot of bad shit that goes on on the dark net that bitcoin has enabled and so there is a slight moral dilemma there and hopefully this this investigates that but it's a sci-fi rock drama about invisibility and any bitcoiners who are into rock musicals will love it hell yeah well go check it out freaks dominic thank you for your time i see you getting the evil eyes from your wife even though i can't see her so i'll let you get back to your friday night <laughs> she lives in in your mind thanks to the power of the ear to absorb information thanks oh, very much marty like. i'll see you i'll see you soon have a good one can't wait to do it again me too cheers me, me too oh that was my dog <laughs>